Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast, joining us via Zoom, is my friend Blair Osler. Welcome to the podcast, Blair. Glad to be here. Thank you. Um, At the end of this podcast, if you want to listen to more of Blair's podcasts on our platform, Blair um, was episode 24 and is also episode 335. She's the first person that's been on the podcast three times. And that's because she has multiple stories to share as part of who she is and her um, journey and her insights. And um, this comes, this podcast results partly from a Facebook post she made on February 27th, 2021, where she talked about being intersex. And we're going to talk about that. I've had some people reach out to me with all the podcasts we've done, nearly 400, and said, do you just have one about someone that's intersex that will share that story? And I responded to those messages and I said, I don't have a one. Um, But then Blair in this Facebook post talked about being intersex. And so here she is on the podcast and our prayer, we said a prayer before we started, this will just be a helpful podcast for you. Blair's pretty straightforward and just talks about the biological facts of what this is and what it means. And she's pretty open in this Facebook post about her and in her own story about who she is. And I just think this helps us um, have proper education that then better meet the needs of people. And so if I'll just turn it over to you, Blair, anything to correct or add to, or just, if not, just dive into your story. No, I'm excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me on again. Yeah. Um, I feel like I just can't stop talking about this besides being LGBTQ. This is my professional field of work and everything I do. So um, I just think you're doing such great work and it's just such a great platform and you've done so much good to help lift uh, marginalized voices. And so I'm just grateful to be here and continue to help hasten the work. Awesome. Um, get, the, get the good news out there. So Um, Just, yeah, go ahead and talk to us. Perfect. Um, Well, first of all, let's talk a little bit about what intersex is. Um, A lot of people have an idea in their head of what biological sex is, um, but sometimes fail to recognize that there's a lot of variance in this biological sex spectrum. So on the one hand, you have what people would identify or would uh, assign as male. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you have what people would assign as female. And these assignments, these biological sex assignments are predicated on uh, basically a list of anatomical assignments. So we have things like internal reproductive anatomy, external genitalia, we have hormones, and we have chromosomes, and we have gametes. And all these collections of different features, when they come together, we go, oh, that one's male and that one's female. However, a collection of those anatomic realities, those features, when we look at them and classify them, they're not always easily categorized for a specific group of people. And this is the intersex population. They're somewhere between male and somewhere between female. And they may, uh, their biology may be more slanted towards the female side or more slanted towards the male side. But the intersex population at large is just anyone with any kind of anatomical variances between male and female. With that being said, there are some very... 
Will you just yeah. do those five? I wish everybody could see Blair's fingers because <laughs> she actually put all five of those on her fingers. I think there were five. Yes. And yes. I didn't know. And to be honest, I didn't know what the last one was. I think you called it gammies. Yeah. Gammies. Yeah. Okay. We'll talk about each one. Let's do Let's each just one. Do... So internal. Okay. Go yeah. ahead. Internal reproductive anatomy. So this would be like for your typically assigned woman would be a uterus and fallopian tubes and your cervix and all those kind of exciting parts. Um, so that's anything inside you that helps um, create uh, your internal reproductive anatomy. Um, next, we have your external genitalia. No explanation really needed there. You know, just we have our True. genitals. And they're all uh, they're all different. There's a wide variance of what genitals can look like, uh, even for cisgender people. Um, and then next we have hormones. So contrary to popular belief, um, you know, men have testosterone and women have progesterone and estrogen. And we actually all have combinations of all three of those. So some women have to, uh, uh, some women have a lot of testosterone, and some men still have a lot of estrogen. And our various hormones. Um, affect the way we develop. And it's not just the hormones we have. For some people, it's also how our hormones are received. So for example, um, some intersex conditions, uh, one's called androgenic, or sorry, uh, androgen insensitivity syndrome. And so these people would look like a typical assigned woman, yet their chromosomes are XY. And the reason that is, is that their body does not process the androgens that are already there. So the testosterone is there, but the receptors that use that testosterone don't really work that way. So they end up looking typically like someone who you would assign female, even though their chromosomes are XY. So your hormones are all playing a role in um, how your body develops and its morphology and its function. Now you said two hormones for women. I, wa I wasn't familiar with the other one. Estrogen and progesterone. That second one I'm not familiar with. Yeah. It's used in a lot of um, different birth control, hormonal birth control pills and things like that um, because it can help regulate your body's uh, ovulation cycle. But it's a normal um, occurring hormone in women. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and the next is chromosomes. And so most people like to think that chromosomes are XY and XX, and that's all there is to it. But you just go one step basic XY and XX. T tell us what those are, men or, or women. Right. So XY is normally assigned man. Okay. And then XX is normally assigned woman. Okay. However, like in the case of androgen insensitivity syndrome, these people look like what you would assign a woman, but they are XY because their androgen receptors don't work the same way everybody else's does. So when they, when they were being developed and they're like, here's the testosterone in the, in the developmental process inside, you know, your mother's womb, their, the androgen receptors were like, oh no, we did, we, we did not receive the message. And so the default was basically what we assigned female. And that just continued to happen despite the XY chromosome still there. Um, and that's just one type of chromosomal difference. There, there are XXX, there's XXY, there's XX. I don't know. There's a few different, don't quote me on all of them, but um, there are many different various 
chromosomal combinations that can take place. So when people think it's just uh, biological sex is just a matter of chromosomes, well, that would be a very incomplete picture. It's how those chromosomes are functioning with your um, hormones. And then those kind of help, you know, turn the wheels and develop how you develop your internal reproductive anatomy and how your genitals form and things like that. The last one on my list, number five, is gametes. Your gametes are basically um, the cells that start life in assigned women. We call those gametes eggs, and they reside inside the ovaries. And then uh, for what we assign as male, uh, we have sperm, and they reside in the testes. So you have eggs and sperm, and when they come together, that's when you start the whole engines of creation, and that starts happening. However, there's variances that take place there too. So some people have what's called ovotestes. So your ovary is where the egg resides. Your testes are where the sperm resides. However, some people's tissue develops differently and um, it's called ovotestes and it has tissues containing both ovaries and testes at the same time. And that can affect your gamete production and your gamete activity and things like that. Um, So again, uh, because these are homologous organs, right? We all have, they're called gonads. We all have gonads, ovaries and testes. And they don't always develop in distinct binary categories as some people would assume. So when you talk about all these anatomical points that we're going through, um, tests, uh, uh, gonads, gametes, and chromosomes and hormones and all these things coming together, there's a lot of room for differences in how these things change the way bodies develop. Um, and that's the intersex population. Now, for some people, there are some different ways that people want to define intersex conditions. And I think it is worth mentioning because some people want to define intersex conditions very narrowly, and some people want to define them very broadly. And there's different reasons and motives for that to happen. So for example, some, uh, some doctors will say the only people who are intersex are the ones with chromosomal variances. Everything else is just kind of a difference. We're going to assign you your sex based on your chromosome. So even though I'm looking at you and you look like what we would assign as male, if your chromosomes were XX, it doesn't matter. We're going to assign you female. So that's one way that doctors have done it. Um, another way that other doctors have done it, it says, no, it's all about the genitalia. When the baby is born, they're naked. You look at their genitalia and you give them a gender assignment based on that. And they'll say only the people with non-binary genitalia are going to be the ones classified as intersex. And a quick sign chat tangent I say non-binary genitalia because um, a a common phrase to use is ambiguous genitalia, but that's not exactly accurate because there's nothing ambiguous about anyone's genitals. They're just right there. They're just not binary. And just because they're not binary doesn't mean they're not, you know, they're ambiguous or there's something wrong. It's just, they don't fit our binary assignments. That's a great great insight. (laughs) Yep. So I use the term non-binary genitalia or even non-binary biology, depending on, you know, what we're talking about. 
Anyway. Now, let me go back to chromosomes. When a doctor yeah. assigns it based on chromosomes, is that a test? Is that something would normally be known at birth, or is that a test that's done later if there's some question about this, this topic? That is an excellent question. So most of the time, gender assignments are done based on genitalia. The majority of babies being born are not having their hormones tested, not having their gametes checked, not having their internal reproductive anatomy checked, and not having their chromosomes checked. So the majority of people who are assigned as intersex usually have some sort of non-binary genitalia. Until later in life, there's usually a few ways people find out their intersex. The first way is usually when you're born and you have non-binary genitals. And this is the one that people get really upset about as far as like non-consensual surgeries and procedures and things like that. And these have been widely discredited as harmful. It can prevent their uh, child's fertility in the future. It can prevent them from achieving orgasm. It can prevent also, it can come with all sorts of harms, um, difficulty urinating, all sorts of things like that. So um, a lot of intersex advocates have advocated against non-consensual surgeries on infants born with non-binary genitalia. Um, and so that's a good thing that that is a practice that's slowly going away. Just educate me. Is there any downside to delaying? I mean, I assume all the, the body works fine with non-binary genitalia and there's no reason. Is there any medical reason to do this surgery at birth? So there's, there's, there's a few reasons. Um, for one reason, Sometimes there is um, certain conditions, intersex conditions, for example. So when a, a what we would assign as a female, a female's vaginal canal overlaps with the urethra, it can cause a problem as far as urinary tract infections and all sorts of things. And these are very painful things. And so there are some conditions that like you can't really wait till the baby is older to correct the overlapping of a vaginal canal and a urethra because it can cause physical harm. And so um, those surgeries have not been really the ones that people are like, no, stop, stop the surgeries. No, it's usually the one based on morphology and aesthetics, meaning you need to look a certain way to fit in, not necessarily even about function. It's just look. So for example, if an intersex child is born and um, uh, her, her, her clitoris is enlarged, they'll say, oh, that needs to be smaller because women are supposed to look this way because the clitoris and the penis are homologous organs and they develop differently depending on hormones that are present during gestation. Um, so Sometimes people will say, oh, this, this, this genitals doesn't, it, it's non-binary genitals and we need it to fit that binary. And so that's when non-consensual procedures and surgeries become problematic because imagine, you know, cutting on a child's clitoris to make it smaller, to look more feminine or whatever. I mean, that's definitely going to affect her, her mental health, safety, and understanding of her body, her sexual relationship in the future, or anything like that. Um, So for the most part, um, there's been a lot of work and awareness done in this area to prevent the non-necessary, usually like aesthetic type surgeries, just to kind of um, 
change, change non-binary bodies to fit into binary categories. The next way a person finds out their intersex is usually around puberty. So puberty is when all sorts of things start to develop. This is perfectly normal. Um, women usually start menstruation. And um, if there's problems there, that's usually when you end up going to a doctor and realizing something. So for example, um, someone who's intersex might have totally binary genitals, um, but, uh, and maybe was assigned male, but then starts experiencing severe abdominal pain. Like when he's, you know, 14 or 15 goes into the doctor, finds out he has a fully functioning uterus inside him and is beginning to menstruate with no way for the menstruation to exit the body. Wow. And so um, in that case, you know, they'll, they'll remove the uterus and, you know, make sure that the patient is safe and everything like that. But that can be one way an intersex person finds out they have uh, intersex variances that they didn't even know about because they look, you know, like like a binary assigned body, so to speak. Um, the next time the, uh, the, the next point in life, usually when someone will find out when they're intersex will be, um, uh, when they try to procreate, when they go try to reproduce children. And at that point, people may find out, oh, my reproductive anatomy isn't what I thought it was. And it doesn't function what it is. And they may be, the person may be infertile or sterile or something during the gestation process of when they were created affected their reproductive ability and caused an intersex condition. So not all intersex people know about it at the beginning of life. Um, or even puberty, some find out much later, like in their 20s and 30s. And like, oh, okay, so that's what's going on, <laughs> you know, usually when they try to reproduce. Um, so when we talk about what defines as intersex, some people have very different definitions. Some people will be like, it's only chromosomes. Some will be like, it's only external genitalia. Some people will be like, it's anything in the spectrum in between of those biological variances, because even our intersex categories can't easily be defined as, oh, it's this one, it's this one, it's this one. It really is. If you think about a spectrum or a rainbow on this end is male and this end is female, there are lots of different biological variances and or, or uh, variances and all sorts of manifestations that are happening along that spectrum. So if we're talking about at what point did this person go from being a woman to being intersex, like where is that line? Where are we going to draw it? Chromosomes, genitalia, hormones, internal reproductive anatomy. Even then we're still kind of like, well, it's still kind of tricky because we don't know exactly where that, that, that line is going to be. And not only that, then we have to take into account what the person is experiencing and going through. So some intersex people um, feel like, no, I'm, I'm totally male. I was assigned male. Yeah, I have this condition, but like, I'm, I'm not intersex. I'm still just male. So individual agency plays a role in how we are going about categorizing our biological sex variances, right? So when we talk about, you know, what is intersex and who is intersex, well, even the definitions themselves are complicated and even the definitions are changing within um, the medical community and things like that. And a lot of a lot of people will be like, usually in conversations, they'll be like, oh, it's so rare. We don't need to worry about that. But even generally strict uh, 
definitions of intersex conditions, they're as common as redheads. 1.5% of the population is said to be intersex. So if you know a redhead, you likely know someone who is intersex. <laughs> and if you know lots of redheads, maybe you know a lot of intersex people. And some intersex people don't even know they're intersex because if they have conditions in their internal reproductive anatomy and never try to have birth or never try to um, uh, create children of their own, they may never even, they may go undiagnosed their entire life. So it's it's really just this, and I, I love intersex people because it's just this really beautiful, natural phenomenon happening in the world. And so many people want to pretend it's not there because it just it doesn't fit our binary expectations and our binary category. And it takes a little more effort on our part, but it really is this 100% naturally occurring thing that happens. And yet we, we go about walking amongst you invisible. <laughs> This is a really good segment. Um, you're very good at explaining sort of the facts of this. And in a way, I've never heard anybody. I learned a lot. Some guests, we've talked about enough of the topics enough. I don't, I pick up little bits, but here I'm picking up tons of stuff. And maybe that's true of you listeners that are for the first time hearing um, intersex sort of laid out in a very factual way. I love, and I love the one of your gifts, Blair, I think, is bringing nuance and and perspective and just um, understanding to complex issues. Even when you, I asked the question about surgery for intersex children, you didn't give a binary answer on that. You said in some situations, it actually is the right thing to do. And so I think that's one of your gifts to our community is your just thoughtfulness about these complex subjects and not making a singular narrative out of complex subjects that sometimes my binary brain wants to go to and just have to deal with the nuance of these. And that the nuance then gives us better tools to mourn, bear, and comfort and understand why people are walking specific roads. So, um, yeah, I just learned a lot. And yeah, that I helps me, and I'm just glad. I also need to go back to my sixth grade a maturation class and do a refresher course <laughs> on some of this stuff. Right, um, right. The the things they don't cover in maturation class. And well, and I love that you brought up that um there really is no singular narrative. And that's that's another interesting thing about the intersex community too, is because we are so varied within our community. There is not just one intersex condition. And that there there are hundreds of various intersex conditions. Some of them don't even have names. They're just, oh, this is the way your biology works. We don't have a name for it, like androgen insensitivity syndrome. That's an intersex condition that has an exact name. Or Turner syndrome, which has its own name. But not all intersex conditions even have their own name or classification or diagnosis. And so if I were to tell you, here's what intersex is, I would just be doing a sore disservice to the intersex community. We each have our own experiences to where some people have experienced very, very traumatic things. Other people, not so much. And it really just depends on how you've been treated throughout your life. When you found out you were intersex and your access to good treatment or, um, you know, the family you grew up in, I was really lucky in that when I found out about yeah, my intersex tell your story. 
Yeah, tell sure, us. sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know there's there's like all this background information you need before like we can even like launch into exactly um, experiences. But um I was lucky in that my my dad's an orthopedic spine surgeon. And so talking about the human body and open surgery photographs on the kitchen table. And we talked about the human body in all sorts of ways. So when some people are like, how can you just talk about clitoris and penises being homologous anatomical body parts without blushing? I'm like, because we did this all growing up. (laughs) Um, The human body in my family was never something disgusting. It was never something to be ashamed of. I talked to my dad about menstruation and pubic hair and anything you could imagine. So growing up in that type of shame-free environment about your body, like that was hugely helpful. I was never meant to feel shame about the body I was given, its functions that I menstruate and all sorts of things like that. So that was hugely helpful. Um, Some people not so, I would say not so lucky. And I'm not saying everybody has to be as open as my family is. We talk about everything, but um, it was I, I do think there is a certain advantage to being raised in a home where biology doesn't come with shame. It comes with let's understand. And there's a big difference there. So often in the intersex community, biology comes with shame. And, and, and that's really not how it should be at all. I mean, you're born with the body you're born with. I, there's no sense in shaming God's good work, right? <laughs> Um, I love that. And I wish our listeners could see Blair's face in this podcast because there is just light and there is no shame as she's talking about this. There's no embarrassment. There's no like, I just think that's one of your gifts is the way you talk about this in a non-shaming positive way. Well, and it's, it's amazing too, because a lot of that came from my, my, my Mormon heritage and upbringing, my, my, my growing up in the church, like I was taught that my body along with agency are the two most powerful gifts I'm giving to receive a fullness of joy required me to have a body. My body is powerful. My body is magical. My body is here that I might have joy. Like the human body is just a thing that we, we, we don't celebrate enough. I mean, our scriptures celebrate it, but I would love for people to get more comfortable with understanding that our bodies, our functions, our desires, these things that we're born with all trapped in this biological meat sack are for our benefit for our joy and goodness. It's all part of the plan of happiness. So there's no need to be like, oh, they had ambiguous genitalia growing up. It's like, no, they were not, they had non-binary genitalia and they made in the image of God just as much as anyone else. So with that being said, um, I was not made to feel shameful about my body in, in my household. If we used correct terminology and we spoke respectfully, we could talk about anything we wanted. And there wasn't any like problems with like, you know, dad being embarrassed or, you know, mom being like, don't talk like that at the table. It just didn't happen in our house at all. So when I reached um, puberty, that's when I started to realize, or when we figured out that there was something different about my biology of, though we didn't know exactly what I didn't start menstruating until I was 17. 
And that's later for um, a lot of uh, women. And uh, when I did, I got really, really sick. I started vomiting. Um, It was not a normal experience that most women would go through, I would say. But I got really, really sick and I would vomit. And then after that, I did not menstruate for an entire year after that. So we had no idea what was going on. You know, when people talk about for most assigned women, uh, um, there's also another term. It's called AFAB, and that's assigned female at birth. So if I say AFAB, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about anybody who is assigned female at birth, just to kind of give you a visual. Um, So most AFABs did not have the experience I was having when it came to menstruation. That's not how it worked. Um, however, we didn't know exactly what was going on. And so we figured um, no need for me to have any kind of surgery or anything like that. We'll just kind of let this play out and see how it goes. It wasn't until, um, gosh, a, almost a decade later that I tried to reproduce And that's when we ran into problems and understanding about my body and my biology. Uh, My husband and I tried for like a year to get pregnant and um, nothing was happening. And so um, what we figured out was, is that my hormones are different than most people's hormones, or sorry, most AFAB hormones. So most women's hormones. Um, I have elevated levels of testosterone that kind of changes the way um, my cycle works and uh, allowing me to ovulate and release an egg and things like that. The second thing we figured out was that um, somewhere in the developmental process of being in my mom's uterus, when I was being born or before when I was being gestated, um, there's a condition called a bicornate uterus. And this is where the uterus is usually shaped like an upside down pear what happens is it starts to split and create two uteruses. So it's in the process of splitting like twin uteruses. Um, And mine was in the process of splitting that. Usually a bicornate uterus starts to look like a heart because it's splitting. Now, some bicornate uterus dip all the way down low. You can have two uteruses eventually that can go to two cervix and two vaginas, which is a whole nother condition in and of itself. But I had a bicornate uterus that had mutated. And so it started to shape down and flatten. So picture like a, like a hot dog. So what a uterus is supposed to look like an upside down pear. Mine looked like a hot dog. Then again, for reasons of known, it started to tilt and turn. So my uterus wasn't even facing up and down in which a child could, you know, I should say enter and exit. Um, it was tilted the wrong direction. So at any point, if any semen was trying to get up towards the uterus and the fallopian tubes to, um, you know, meet that egg to make a baby, it was not going to happen that way. Interesting. <laughs> so um, my hormones combined with my uterus and my irregular ovulation cycle, I had irregular gamete activity. Um, finally, uh, <laughs> we were finally like, oh, this makes so much more sense. This made sense why when you were, you know, 17 Blair, you were having problems menstruating and all sorts of kinds of things like that. And eventually um, we figured some things out. And through the miracle of modern medicine, I was able to have three beautiful babies, three beautiful, beautiful babies. Um, uh, 
the, the, my pregnancies because of my intersex conditions are, are very dangerous. Um, my children, if you picture like a uterus that's shaped like a hot dog, my children sit sideways and they're not coming out that way. <laughs> it's just impossible. So, um, um, uh, all of mine were planned C-sections, so mm. they had to be cut out. Mm. So that's okay. A lot of women have C-sections, right? Not even all intersex women have C-sections. So it's just, again, part of the process. My pregnancies were very, very difficult. The last one, my daughter, it was so difficult um, that I ended up getting uh, sterilized on the operating table mm. after she was removed. Um, I lost consciousness and um, I lost a lot of blood. It, I, I almost died on the operating table. It was, um, wow. it was a risky move. But after that, um, my husband and I both decided, you know what? It's more important that these three babies have a mama than we have a fourth baby and no mama. So um, I ended up getting sterilized right there on the operating table. And this is just my plug to say um, technology is amazing. And if we aren't taking advantage of technology enough to help our bodies fulfill their desires, um, we're missing out. Technology allows us to make babies. It allows us to stop making babies when we need to stop. Um, in a weird way, I would say I'm even less of an intersex woman and more of a cyborg woman because I've used so much technology to try to get my body to function the way I wanted it to, that I'm like, oh, my, my body... I'm, I'm natural, but I'm also a work of science fiction. I really am. It's amazing what my body can do when um, combined with the proper use of technology. On the flip side, improper use of technology can do really harmful things to a body, especially when it goes against those body's desires. So for example, an intersex person who has a non-consensual procedure done on them without their knowledge or consent this is a misuse of our technology. At this point, we're using our technology to manifest our own desires to create a surgically constructed biological sex binary more than we are concerned about the health and safety of actual people. And so we need to be careful about how we're using our technology, applying our technology. And um, really, the way I see it, we should be using our technology to help bodies and families flourish. And if we're not, if we're not implementing flourishing, what are we doing with our technology at this point? We really need to help humans flourish. And again, this all goes back to the plan of salvation and the plan of happiness. And guess what? If it's not causing happiness, it's not the plan of happiness. The plan of happiness should never make you feel shameful that your body was born different. The plan of happiness should never make you feel shameful because my body only made three babies and didn't make 18 babies. The plan of happiness isn't a plan of shame is what I'm trying to get up That's across here. worth rewinding for some of our listeners will rewind that. I love that, Blair. Good, good. So um, for me, my, my intersex variances and conditions, the way they played out in my life, I didn't have a, a significant amount of shame for my gender as far as like um, the biology, because I think most people are generally pretty good at saying, oh, you were born this way and it's not your fault. The part where I had a difficulty was people tend to assume that there is one type of woman 
And if you're not that type of woman, you're less than a woman. So let's unpack that a little bit. If you, there's people have in their minds, there's one type of woman, you look this way, you sound this way, you walk this way, but you also function a certain way. So people will say things like, oh, we just naturally have the gift of life. And so we don't need to be ordained to the priesthood. And I'm thinking, not all women have that natural gift of life. (laughs) And so to justify a natural God-given process that not all women have as means to say, this is why you don't need ordination is just nonsensical at a certain point because God didn't give everyone that, 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 uh, that natural God-given right. And so not every single woman or every single body is the same. I remember one time I was talking with a doctor and I was having um, problems menstruating. And sometimes they'll give me feminine hormones to induce menstruation. And I was on the phone with the doctor and she's like, oh, we got your test results back. And she rattled off the numbers and she's like, here's your testosterone levels. And she goes, you know what? It's really high, but guess what? You're still a woman. And I thought that was the funniest response. Here's your testosterone number, but don't worry, you're still a woman. And I thought to myself, if I had scored three points higher, would I not be a woman? Would I be eligible for male ordination? At what point was I woman enough and not woman enough to uh, be eligible for ordination? So when our social programs and our um, policies and how we run the church and things are predicated on a biological sex binary, we have to take into account, well, some people don't fit that binary. What do we do with these people? And so I remember thinking about that and being like, at what point am I a woman and not a woman? And what point am I to man, but not man enough? And just not fitting in these categories, right? And I remember trying so hard at taking hormones T-blockers, all sorts of things. These are, these are all things that our transgender members take. They take these things. I take the same meds as our transgender members, yet in so many ways, I am afforded more social grace and clemency because I happen to be intersex instead of trans. And it just didn't, it just didn't sit right with me that. I could be taking the same hormones and medications as this person who was assigned male at birth, but yet they were sinning and I wasn't. It made no sense to me. We could take the exact same medication, but I was not sinning and they were. I, I, just, I just couldn't picture God pointing at a trans woman saying, don't take that tea blocker. And then pointing at Blair and say, yes, take that tea blocker. I just don't think it works that way. I think our heavenly parents give us agency to know what medications and hormones uh, create a body that, 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 that really creates a safe space for the spirit. One thing I don't think people consider enough is our bodies. Yes, our temples, but they're temples so the spirit can reside in us. But if something's not right with my body, if I can't feel the presence of the spirit with me, if I can't feel my heavenly parents talking to me and something's off with my body, my body and my spirit, they affect 
one another. Those need to be in line with one another. For me, there have been times in my life where the gender dysphoria was so bad that I couldn't feel the spirit. And I personally have got confirmation through prayer and the spirit and my heavenly parents that have told me on multiple occasions that... Sorry, it's a little bit tender. I haven't thought about this in a long time. Um, You can't feel the spirit if you're not happy. If there's something wrong with your body, Blair, go fix it. Go fix it. And so... If I wanted to, if if my body is the temple that it is, sometimes temples need renovations. Sometimes temples need some help. Sometimes temples need some work done. And when, when I have been able to have control and autonomy over my body to present myself the way I need to present myself, I'm really just making a space where the spirit can dwell, where I can feel my heavenly parents' love. People don't think about gender euphoria as a product of the spirit, but it is. Gender euphoria is the spirit's way of telling you you're on the right track. You're on the right track. That's the way your body's supposed to be. That should feel good. It's the plan of happiness. And so there should be a lot less gender dysphoria than there is gender euphoria. And I'm just, I mean, I just, I I feel in a place of privilege because people have granted me that clemency to be able to say, yes, Blair, you're allowed that gender euphoria. But I'm a little bit transish too. When I have to take all the meds that trans women take in order to make me be a woman and then be a woman, that's a, that's a shared experience. We're both having a trans experience. And if we could better understand biological sex is complicated, and we don't know why some people are trans and why some people aren't trans. But the technology and tools that are there at our disposal can help us. They can help us a lot. And trans people should be granted that clemency just as much as I have been. It's a great segment. Um, a thought and then a question. Yeah. The thought is, and I, this isn't for Blair, but for listeners, I hope we don't look at one person's intersex experience and, and because it's one of these five categories, it's somehow more important or less important. So Blair shared her intersex experience um, that became clear later in life. And that to me doesn't make her more or less intersex than someone that has a different of these characteristics. And I'm sure Blair would agree with that. So let's don't create a a yardstick and say, we're not going to let, let's let intersex people decide if they're intersex versus us that aren't intersex sort of saying, well, you've got to hit these three criteria before I'll give you that grace. Because to me, that's just part of um, honoring other members of our human family, not adding to their burden for them to have to prove to us who they are. Um, The second thing I want, you brought up gender dysphoria a little bit, and I think you even said you experienced gender dysphoria. Just Educate our listeners the difference between gender dysphoria and intersex, and do all intersex people experience gender dysphoria? Is that just two completely different things that shouldn't be mixed in as universe? As they're just different things, but some people have both. I am happy to talk about those terms. So, first of all, 
gender euphoria just means you are having an experience that makes you feel right about your gender. And anyone can have that experience. For example, um, you, I'm assuming you like being called Richard and I'm assuming you like he pronouns. And when I say, you know, Richard, right? He is a cool dude. That probably gives you a small bit of gender euphoria. True. Um, Gender dysphoria is the same thing. It can happen to anyone. So um, for someone who is mispronounced or for someone whose body isn't functioning they want the way they want it to, this can cause a sense of gender dysphoria, meaning my gender is not presenting or performing the way I want it to. Um, and this can also include how your community sees you and talks to you and interacts with you. So gender euphoria and dysphoria, they're definitely a personal experience happening with you, but it's also a social experience as well with all these people on the outside. Okay. Um, so anyone can experience those. The reason we talk about them a lot in like trans intersex and non-binary communities is because this is usually not always what triggers someone to go, Oh, my gender dysphoria is acting up. I'm experiencing something that's like, my body's not right this way. I need to change something in my body to have better experiences of gender euphoria. Um, again, this can happen to anyone, but it happens a lot within the gender queer community. When you're intersex, when you identify as anything, you're having both a little bit of a cisgender experience and a little bit of a transgender experience too. Because if I was assigned, so I was assigned female at birth and my body doesn't do that thing. Well, I have to take technology, ingest pills and do those things, surgeries. I've had surgeries and things done to make me a woman. So in a weird way, I was kind of sort of born a woman, but I was also created into a woman. Like I had a hand of agency in this, right? So, you know, a woman is born, yes, but she is also created. There's no need to distinguish the difference between the two, so to speak. Um, So intersex people are usually used a lot in talking about these conversations of where do trans people fit? Where do non-binary people fit? Because People want to think of it as, oh, you're just mentally ill, which is not true, not true at all. Totally discredited by multiple medical organizations and establishment. It is not true at all. Um, And so what it does, though, the interesting things about trans people is some trans people have made the argument, which I think is a really interesting one, is that trans people are intersex because their brain, their body, whatever it is about them is experiencing a different gender than the one they were assigned. And that is an intersex experience, which I think is super fascinating. And that's like another finger on your hand, a sixth, exactly. a sixth finger, a sixth category. Exactly. They'll say, here's the sixth category. And some people call it the brain, but I think that's a little too reductive because it resides in more of the brain. I think the sixth the sixth marker of gender is, is agency. And yeah, that happens in the brain, but it happens in other parts of your body too. It's a, agency is a bod, bodily experience. And agency is what is inside you telling you through gender euphoria and gender dysphoria, oh, I am this thing or oh, I'm not this thing. And so 
I hope that we continue that as we understand more about our biologies and more about our bodies is that our agency is all wrapped up in this too. So for example, um, there's actually a genetic component to whether or not you like cilantro. For some people, the taste of cilantro is like soap. And for other people, it's delicious. I'm one of the delicious cilantro lovers. The more cilantro, the better. But for some people, there's a genetic component that just says that tastes like soap. It's gross. And they have a strong aversion to it, right? Now, we don't know this yet, but there may be genetic components to why some people identify as something that they weren't assigned. Um, We may find gender or, or genetic components to why people uh, are attracted to members of the same sex versus the opposite sex or people like me who are like, I like all the members. I do wonder being bisexual or pansexual, however you want to say it. Um, how much of that has been influenced by being intersex? Cause sometimes I'm like, Oh, my masculine side is coming out. Isn't she beautiful? <laughs> and, then, and so, um, the funny thing also about intersex people is, um, there's always like this pressure to like, pick a side. You got to be one or the other, you know, of course use technology to change yourself, but pick a side. And it's like, well, it's not that easy. I am what I am and I like what I like. And so if you're an intersex person, are you gay if you like women or are you gay if you like men? Which one is the gayer option for an intersex body? And so in some ways, this again, this is like for my personal journey, why I just use the term queer because I'm like, it just encompasses my biology. It encompasses my gender experience and identity and it encompasses my sexual orientation. It's just queer. I don't know why I was created this way, but I do know that my queerness brings me joy. So it can't be that bad. <laughs> it's, it's queer. It's queer. This is what, this is, this is when we get into the space of the conversation where people start to go, Oh, so it really doesn't matter what gender you are or who you are attracted to. Maybe we should just all try to be a good person. Yes. That is the correct answer. <laughs> Um, this has just been a helpful podcast for me and for our listeners. I'm going to ask you about your book that's coming out if you want to talk about that. But I think for me, listening to this, I just recognize we're at the front end of learning things that in 30 years we'll go back and go, I wish I, I wish I understood what I know now back then because I probably would have been kinder to people. I use the story of Catherine Schweitzer in 1967 running the Boston Marathon And everybody assumed in 1967, women couldn't run marathons and the race officials ran after and tried to rip off her number. And now we'd all cringe with that, armed with the understanding we have today, the stories of people that run marathons. We know women marathon runners. And we could all wish we could go back that we're alive in 1967, be kinder to Catherine Schweitzer. And so uh, it's just living the gospel of Jesus Christ and following Christ's teachings for me, listeners, just caused me to want to extend grace and kindness and understanding as I'm learning about people that I haven't had as much exposure to, to instead of dismiss them or say they're confused, this is a mental illness or a sign of Satan confusing people. I think it's better to put that on the shelf and listen to people that are walking these roads. And then um, after listening to a lot of people, I think it helps us know how best to a minister and to bear mourn and comfort and not say things that would add to somebody like Blair's burden as she bravely shares her story. And so I, 
you know, this is helpful for me because I love Elder Cook's quote. I've been quoting that a lot on the podcast and general conference. He talks about unity and diversity. And I think that's sort of the finish line is there's unity and sameness. And I think we're all good at that of just being unified when we're around people that are just like us and have the same worldview and the same sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, but I think a higher bar is unity and diversity and finding common ground and just, and I think we as Latter-day Saints ought to be the best at that because we have this 40,000 picture that we're all children of the same heavenly parents that love us. We're, Blair is my, I don't know what you, you know, is my spiritual sister, I was going to say. Um, <laughs> my spiritual, you know, sibling for sure. Um, and so I just, that's the way I approach this listeners as a committed Latter-day Saint. And I'm just willing to um, sort of Elder Uchtdorf in a conference, in a worldwide training, it's in my book, he says, he challenged us to get past the massive iron gates of what we thought we already knew. And I think that's a charge to be humble as we are, as we are trying to understand new things that may be uncomfortable for us at first, um, but are part of helping us be a better person and better support others. So I want you to, if you'd like to, just tell listeners about your book that's coming out. They may be listening to this podcast when it's out and how to get to it. So if you want to share with our listeners in this closing segment about your book or anything that I've said you want to go back to. No, that's terrific. Um, yeah, I think we covered a lot here. People will probably be chewing on it for a while and they'll probably have some feedback. But um, yeah, so um, my book is coming out this June. Not sure when this will air, but it will be available for purchase on Amazon this June. It's called Queer Mormon Theology. And this book is very special. It There's nothing like it out there right now, at least. Um, the book is queer because it talks about all the ways in which Mormon theology is already queer. And I do specifically choose to use the word Mormon because it extends to more than just the Latter-day Saint community. It extends into all the different um, various uh, various uh, Mormon denominations. So it really is queer Mormon theology because it's more than a book just for Latter-day Saints. But um, there are a lot of books on the market that talk about a lot of people's um, personal experiences as LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. And there are also a lot of academic books that center the church as far as a protagonist to talk about LGBTQ people. This book is neither of those types of books. This book is um, <laughs> non-binary. It interweaves personal experience with academic experience. Um, it talks about the church, but it also privileges um, queer perspectives and experiences too. And this this book, I'm I'm just so excited about it because it was really birthed from Elder Uchtdorf's conference talk, where he said, "There's room for you in this church." And when I heard that, I I want I want that to be true so badly that I wrote a book about how this could be true for LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. And so if we really believe there's room for you in this church, how, how is that possible? How does that look? And some people want to go, oh, we need to change policy. We need to start doing this X, Y, Z. And I feel like changing policy without theology is empty. And we need a solid theological framework for why queerness isn't just this side tangent thing, but an important part of our divinity of who we are as people. And so really queer Mormon theology, I, 
I see it as a very joyful book. I know there are some people who I say things in there that's going to make them uncomfortable. It's going to stretch them a little, but I see it as a very joyful, hopeful book that says, look, queer people belong here just as much as anyone else. And I'm really, I'm really confident that uh, our heavenly parents see it that way too. Um, uh, thanks for writing the book. I, I look forward to reading it. Um, look forward to learning. And I, the word queer, you know, listeners, I'm, you know, 60 years old. And that's a word, obviously, that generates a lot of different feelings in a lot of different people. But if there's any negative that comes with that, unless you're LGBTQ and you feel traumatized by that term, and certainly LGBTQ people my age do feel that way sometimes. The younger people are taking that on as a positive way. And so we shouldn't hear that word and think that that's a word that's not consistent with Christ's teachings, with church teachings. Um, so when you hear the word queer in a book title, don't, you know, don't let that trigger you in a negative way, because um, that's who Blair is. And part of the grace that we're extending and learning to extend is to let people label themselves as they please and honor those labels. To me, that's just part of my responsibility as a Latter-day Saint. So I wish, you know, we don't do video podcasts, but if you could see Blair, she just has this brightness and this hope and this positivity. She's got a couple of her kids walking through the back of the Zoom call that you can just tell this is a wonderful home. It's not a perfect home. Our home's not perfect, but I'm also thinking that if I'm one of Blair's kids, just the conversations that Blair and her husband are having the same kind of conversations that Blair and her father had, um, just these topics are safe within her home. And as her kids are aging up, I think one of the blessings of um, their household is their kids will just be safe to talk to their parents about everything. And that's what we want as parents. So these kind of conversations I think are helpful in talking kindly about people um, all types of people, signals to your own kids that, man, my parents are probably pretty safe for me to talk to as I need to talk about potentially complicated things going on in my life. So Blair, um, my love and prayers continue to be with you. Thanks for your all you're doing and helping in so many different circles. And I pray that you'll be continue to be sustained and know how much your work is appreciated for many people. And so um, thanks for being on the podcast, Blair. And we are not related, as I may have mentioned, but I teased Blair that somehow we are related. I guess if we got out that app that shows where you're related, we'd find out <laughs> probably through your yeah. husband since you got, I assume you took on your husband's name to get. Yeah. <laughs> What's your maiden name for our listeners? It's Carpenter. It's right. German. So my line, um, I have a lot of German Jewish ancestors that came here through that line and joined the church. and. Um, yeah, so I'm mostly German, Jewish, French, and Irish, and I married an ostler, a British, a British, you know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and ostler is a very Utah Mormon name. Everybody I've met that has the name ostler is, has some ties to the LDS church. So, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of that <laughs> comes through Nephi, Utah, but anyway, this is Blair Osler and Richard Osler signing off on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. Mm-hmm.